Jabless, you bastards. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast, episode number 80 fucking 3. How are you getting on? Are you having a gentle, fun week? I hope you are. Um, Good crack last week. Good bit of feedback. It was a nice, decent, hot take. A hot take about how China has created God through technology. If you're one of the new listeners to this podcast, there are many, many new listeners because Acast are putting out adverts. If you're a new listener, I would suggest uh, going back to the very start of the podcast or go listen to some of the earlier episodes, right? There's a wealth of stuff there. Don't just start with this episode, basically. It's not a sequential podcast. So... Again, up the walls, busy. Ridiculously busy. Uh, Hair-pullingly busy. I had two live podcasts there at the weekend. I had Letter Kenny and... I can't even remember what the second one was. It was Mullingar. Letter Kenny and fucking Mullingar. And they were great. They were good crack. Letter Kenny was a bit of a trek. Do you know? getting up there four or five hours in the car but it turned out to be just a fucking great podcast lovely the audience were fantastic it was a full house great sound and with a smashing lovely night everyone was happy I was happy uh, stayed in, in a fantastic hotel in Letterkenny that had it had a fucking it had a jacuzzi right it had a jacuzzi in the a jacuzzi in, in the bedroom or whatever you'd call it the toilet a jacuzzi in the toilet and I was all set to fucking relax and go brilliant there's a jacuzzi I'll get into that and then I was just talking to someone and they t- I, I mentioned it offhand and they told me how they were in Spain and got chlamydia off a jacuzzi so and I was like what do you mean you got chlamydia off a jacuzzi I'm like are you sure you weren't like having sex with someone unprotected and they're like no I didn't have sex with anyone I got into a jacuzzi and got chlamydia. So, I like I don't know. I don't know if that's possible, if it's true. But, to be honest, I, I, I didn't really want to go back to my fucking hotel room. And then get into my jacuzzi. Having just heard a story about someone who got chlamydia off a jacuzzi. So, I just I climbed into bed instead. And uh, looked at a bit of Netflix and then went to sleep. Then the next night I had Mullingar. Mullingar, as you know. Um, it was a tough podcast to sell. Mullingar, like that whole region, Mullingar, Roscommon, up around there. Like I, I'm gigging 12 years. It's very difficult to sell tickets up around there. It just is. I don't know why. Some promoters say that it's um, because those areas are very heavily hit by, by immigration. But I don't know. So we... The Mullingar one, you know, the promoter was pulling his hair out, telling me, push the podcast more, push the podcast more, I'm not happy with sales. But we sold it out for a finish, because I fucking knew we would. I said it was going to be grand, and it was grand. And I had a class guest, and we had lots of fun. So, a good weekend, but I shouldn't be doing gigs in May at all, to be perfectly honest. I really shouldn't, because I've got this fucking book deadline, and... 31st of May I have to have the book finished and here's the thing with book deadlines there's no fucking around with a book deadline you have to have your book finished on 31st of May 
so that it can get printed and that the book can be in the shops for Christmas. Okay? Because if you release a book um, at any time other than Christmas, if you want to actually sell it, it's pointless. Forget about it. If you want to sell a book in 2019 and sell a decent amount of copies, Christmas market or fuck off. So, yeah, literally, if I don't meet my deadline on the 31st of May, there is no book for another year. It is simple as that. Um, so that's the intense amount of pressure I'm under. I have another two gigs this weekend, but luckily they're in Limerick. So that just means going into the gig and then leaving. And that won't affect my writing. But I was I was writing on the way up to those two gigs. What I have is uh, I bring my laptop with me and I have this little... It's, it's like a cushioned laptop table. So it goes on my knees and then it keeps it relatively stable. So I can write... When I'm like going to my gigs, I can if if you know if, if if transit to a gig is two hours, four hours, that means it's it's not last time. I can actually be writing while I'm doing it. But I couldn't. One thing I hadn't factored in: when you go and gig in Letterkenny or Mullingar, which are kind of out of the way, as in they're not big towns or cities, the roads are shit, and the roads are um, windy and bumpy. So I couldn't fucking write on the way to either of those places or the way back because I realise I can only write when I'm on a motorway and it's straight. If I'm going to Cork or Dublin or somewhere, I can write. Or up to Belfast. Anywhere in the Midlands, forget about it. I'm not writing. It's too... The journey is too involved. So I just have to sit back and listen to music and feel feel a, a, a general sense of dread and terror that I'm not getting any writing done. I know, look, it wasn't that bad. I, uh, when I can't write, what I do is I read what's already written and take notes for editing. <clears throat> so anyway, for this week's podcast, I have had a num- number and a number of requests. Like, I get so many questions sent to me. I get people, like, DMing me on Instagram, on Twitter. I get fucking... Patreon non-stop people asking me questions about life, uh, wanting me to talk about certain things, wanting my opinion on things. And I just, if I have a good hot take going, and it's 50 minutes long, by the time I get to the end of that hot take, I'm burnt out, and I hardly ever get to answer your questions anymore. And you keep asking for it. So this week, I'm going to do a questions podcast. I'm going to answer... Uh, I... I picked them out during the week. I can't. I pick them out and I put them into a folder, but I try not to look at them and think of, think of them that much because I want to surprise my own brain. And I think I'm going to need that this week as well too because I'm so... I have to factor in mental energy. It's one of the things that pisses me off about my job. I could set aside, we'll say, eight or nine hours for work, right? I'm, I'm going to write for eight hours. But realistically, I'm at the mercy of how much my brain wants to do. My brain might, might just want to write for four hours. You can't push your brain beyond what it says it, it needs to do. So, I think my head's a little bit frazzled this week for a hot take. So, what you do in those situations where your brain is kind of creatively stunned, the way to get out of that is random inputs. So what I would do is, if my brain is tired, 
take a break for a half hour, have a cup of coffee, relax, and then I'll feed it random things, random images. Sometimes random words. I'll go onto Google and look up random noun generator and the word falcon might come up. Do you know? And just the fact that it's the fact that it's random means that it will spark different things in my brain. So that's what questions podcasts do for me. I love not having a plan and being excited to answer questions and kind of discover things in the here and now. So that's what I'm going to do. Because you asked for it. You gorgeous boys and girls. So all of this week's questions are coming from the Patreon page. Now that's not... Because you know the way... Like I speak a lot about... Like I I really don't want to have one of these podcasts where the people who are patrons are getting more than people who aren't patrons. I, I, I really want to avoid that if I can. I want to keep it as democratic as possible. But the reason I'm taking all these questions off Patreon is I just it, it Patreon tends to have the highest quality of question and it makes sense because the people on Patreon are patrons. That means they they like the podcast so much that they're like, I want to support this. So I'm answering these questions because they're of extremely high quality. They're also in one place. Sometimes I go onto Patreon and I'll say, have you any questions? And I'll have a big list of them. So, first question. Podrick asks, why have you never done a podcast on a serial killer? Um, I haven't. I don't think I haven't done any podcast on serial killers. I don't... Like I, I I I think I think it's because I'm I'm not sure how how serial killers really sit with me. Um right first off like in a podcast sense there's no shortage of podcasts out there about serial killers. Like serial killer podcasts are really popular. Um secondly I like I just there's something like like, I like serial killer stuff. I think we all do. Okay? Like, and I often try and wonder, what you know, why is that? What, why do we want to read about or listen to or become fascinated with people who, who behave like absolute monsters and animals? And I don't think... Like, there's a few complicated things, right? So, number one, there's a problematic side to it and there's an unproblematic side. The unproblematic side to serial killers is, I think, it's it's the psychological equivalent of... It's the same part of ourselves that wants to go on a roller coaster, all right? Roller coasters, for all intents and purposes, feel like a car accident. You're you know with full confidence and safety you're putting yourself in a situation where you get to feel utter terror but from the cognitive position and knowledge of actually being safe so that's quite thrilling in the same way that horror films are good crack do you know it shouldn't be horror films are about torture and they're frightening and they're scary and you'd never want to find yourself in that situation but there's something about it that's really 
exhilarating, something about that pain that's exciting and has a short-term buzz. I mean, eating fucking chilli peppers, same crack. Chilies shouldn't taste nice, especially fucking hot ones. You know, but I, I do enjoy a very hot curry, even though I'm essentially injuring my tongue. I don't know why. It gives a little bit of a rush. And I think serial killer stuff is... Psychologically, it's in that territory. It's... You want to safely bask in utter terrifying fucking horror. And I think... I don't think that's problematic because it seems to be universal to humans. Most people, most normal, fully functioning, regular people enjoy a good serial killer story or like to read up about it or even like to hear about the the, the more macabre details of, of the mechanics of how they murder and are necrophiles and chop up corpses and hide them and evade the law. We just like this. Um, now at a safe... Like I went down... Like, I had about two hours last week where I didn't want to fucking write. I was like, okay, I need some me time now to actually do something that I enjoy. Which is, I want to read and learn and be engaged and not think about my responsibilities. So I ended up... Who was the serial killer I was looking at? Was it John Wayne Gacy? I don't even remember. But some... No. Was his name Mr. Cruel? Yeah. There was an Australian guy called Mr. Cruel who had a particularly terrifying fucking uh, police sketch. So I ended up reading about that at Wikipedia Hall, basically. So you're clicking on one serial killer to the next and something about it is very engaging it feels frightening it feels thrilling I, but 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 I feel safe but with me and reading about serial killers there's always something there's always a point about an hour into it where it stops being enjoyable and my compassion and my empathy kicks in and then it starts to be very very fucking bleak and depressing which it should be and that's when I step away from the serial killer thing and desire something a bit more wholesome, like animal videos or something. And I always find that point where... Do you know, that reminds me a bit. Actually, yeah, there's there's something relevant about that. So if, if, I'm, if I indulge in this serial killer literature, I get a buzz, but then I reach the point of diminishing marginal returns, I suppose you'd call it in economics... That reminds me of other stuff that's highly stimulant. Such as, you know, who doesn't like a bar of chocolate? Bar of chocolate is fucking lovely. It's not particularly good for you. You start eating it, you're going yummy, 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 yummy. And then you reach a point where, you know, you're getting all these lovely rewarding chemicals off your brain. And then you reach a point where it just goes, no more, this is disgusting. Oh, that's depressing. Oh, what the fuck have you done to yourself? Why did you do that? I feel sick. The experience of reading about and listening to the story of serial killers, it has the same thing. There's a point of diminishing marginal returns where I'm getting a little endorphin kick, something about it is thrilling, and then boom, this is the most depressing thing I have ever done. Oh my God, he had his ma's head in a bag in his room 
for three weeks. Can you imagine how bleak that is? I don't even want to go there. Please give me some videos of very rotund raccoons trying to climb objects. I need that for a half hour. So that's what that's what serial killers do for me. I think is what it does for other people. That's the unproblematic side because I think it there's some type of purging in there. There's some aspect of self-discovery. What it also is too, I think, is and this is it. It, it harks back to a book by Freud that I, I I mention a lot. Civilization and its discontents, or civilization and its malcontents. I can't think of the full name of the book, but basically, it's Freud's book where he tries to understand how does something like the Holocaust happen? Okay, how does how do how does mass murder happen? Something like the Holocaust or any genocide where regular people perform murderous acts. The capacity to become a murderous, inhumane, animalistic serial killer is within every single one of us. It is a part of humanity. Okay? The thing with serial killers is they do it out of nowhere in what you would call peacetime. But in situations of war, regular normal people will commit acts of severe brutality and butchery in the name of self-defense or fear. So it's in all humanity. It, it simply is. And um, like one example, I can't remember the footage, but I remember there was this Syrian man, I believe, it, it was before ISIS. It was when, when the Syrian civil war first kicked off around 2011 before ISIS got stuck in and what it was was it was the free Syrian army versus Assad's forces I believe but anyway there was a guy in in the FSA and he had been a doctor I believe okay so a functioning regular member of society who was actually helping his community and this doctor anyway got stuck into the, the war and it got very hardcore and they were killing every single day. And this doctor went viral because he went to the body of an opposition shoulder, soldier who'd been killed and he cut his chest open and ate his heart on camera. And the interview that I saw was this doctor. About a year later, he'd left Syria and had found himself in back in society somehow not in Syria he he applied as a refugee to go somewhere else i don't know what country it was but he was he was back he was no longer in the terror and insanity of war he was now a member of society again and the video that i saw was him weeping uncontrollably to camera trying to understand how he had ripped someone's heart out of their chest and eaten it and all he was saying was that I had to do it. I, I needed the opposition to know that we were unbeatable. That if, if you can eat someone's heart, then you can't beat us. We we're capable of anything. But he was recoiling at the horror of his own actions. So I think, too, the reason we go, we, we find some degree of pleasure in serial killer films or stories or whatever, it's. I think there's a degree of therapy or, or a, trying, a self-understanding 
we're, we 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 try and find that darkness in ourselves that's deep in our unconscious, the part of ourselves that is capable of acts of brutality that we all have as humans. It's there, lads. That's why war exists. It's as simple as that. Okay? Bullshit to say that we don't... Every single fucking person has this. It's there. And it happens during war times. And we don't engage it during peacetime. And I think the, the obsession with serial killers allows us to therapeutically... um kind of be face to face with that part of ourselves for a little bit and then recoil in horror like when I feel that dark depression after a good hour of fucking Jeffrey Dahmer it's like I've come too close to that part of myself and I go no fucking way I'm, I'm gone no thank you That's I would hate to be there how sad would that be to be responsible for that much misery so because, like I said, it, it seems to be something that a lot of humans like and it's very common. I, therefore, it's probably, there's something healthy about it even though it doesn't appear to be that healthy. The problematic side of serial killers is how they're valorized via celebrity culture. That's fucked up and there's no excuse for it. Um, a couple of podcasts ago, you know, I spoke about Charles Manson. And I related him in with the, the Beach Boys in Nirvana or whatever. But, like, Charles Manson was turned into a, a celebrity, an icon, you know. And he had fan mail and all this shit. And when serial killers are viewed through this spectacle of celebrity and media, that's that's problematic. Because then you start to... You're not truly engaging with the horrors of their acts. Ted Bundy, a fucking fine example. One of the first proper celebrity serial killers because his trial was televised on, on TV. And I did watch, I watched that, the film with Zac Efron that just came out a week ago. How did I see it? I saw it at streaming online anyway the other night. And Zac Efron plays Ted Bundy. The trailer for it came out about four months ago and the trailer was fucking horrendous to the point that I think they deliberately did it they had a trailer for this movie about Ted Bundy the fucking mass murdering raping necrophile horrible person who did horrible things and they had Zac Efron in it and the, the trailer looked as if it was a romantic comedy and I, I it was such a fuck up I think they did it deliberately to get people talking about it because if they didn't do it I wouldn't even know about the film to be honest because Zac Efron isn't on my radar but I watched the film and it's not brilliant it's not amazing but one thing that I did find good about it it's a film about a serial killer there's no murders in it as such it's told through the eyes of the people that were manipulated by that serial killer. So it's told through the eyes of Ted Bundy's wife and how she was manipulated by this psychopath and, and refused to believe that he was doing these things. And it's told through the eyes of other people in his life who were, who were essentially manipulated. And Zac Efron does a fantastic fucking job at being a lovely, charming man and you don't see a lot of the horrors. So as a result, me, the viewer, is manipulated, manipulated and gaslit. 
into liking this person. And I think I, I, I liked that. I liked that. I felt it was very participatory and quite engaging and left me with some nice, some new emotions, we'll say. Even though it's it's not the best film, to be honest. But that angle, I thought that was kind of good. Lydia asks, what is the key to a peaceful existence? Oh, boy. Um, do you know what? Before, that's, that's a big question, and I'm looking forward to answering that one, but I think... I'll have an ocarina pause now, so the answer to that isn't interrupted. Where the fuck is my ocarina? Where the fuck is this? Okay, the, the ocarina's gone AWOL. Where the fuck is it? I had it on there. Okay, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lighter pause this week. I've got my trusty storm lighter. And I'm going to do this in order to warn you about any potential adverts that might be played. So let's let's hear it for the Stormlighter pause. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. There you go. The the ocarina isn't lost. It's just somewhere in this studio and I don't know where it is. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Would you like to be a patron of this podcast? Um, is it providing you with enjoyment? If you met me in real life, would you like to buy me a coffee or a pint? You can do it once a month patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast I invite you please to become a patron it's how I earn a living it makes a huge difference to my fucking life it gives me a sense of certainty over my finances it's fantastic it's what keeps the podcast going but if you can't afford it don't feel guilty okay this is for people who can afford it and sometimes you know you might be for a while and then you might come off might go back on it's grand. Don't worry about it. Okay. So, to Lydia's question, what what is the key to a peaceful existence? Um, I would say that I do, I do have a peaceful existence. I... How do I measure it? I... My, my happiness is... I would say like an 8 out of 10 most of the time and it would never drop below a 6 so I'm 8 out of 10 happiness Um, all the time really I don't really I'm okay with worry 
I wouldn't say I have stress in my life. Now, I spoke at the start of the podcast about being intensely busy. I'm very, very busy. A huge amount of work. And I have a lot of deadlines and pressure. But that doesn't necessarily manifest itself as stressful. Um, Because these things really give me a sense of meaning. And at the end of the fucking day... My pre- I'm, like, I'm writing a fucking book. This is what I want to do. It's what I love doing. I don't mind spending hours and hours and hours doing it. I only get frustrated when... I feel like elements of it are outside of my control. But in general, it's grand. Pr- pressure does not mean stress. If I'm procrastinating or going a long time without creating anything and not meeting my needs... If I have a desire to create... And I don't because I'm scared and I put it off. That's intensely stressful. And I'm doing no work. That's very stressful. And as a result of that I would then feel unhappy. So. Key to a peaceful existence. It's it's never going to be one thing. It has to be. I don't like. I'm going to use the word holistic. Right. But holistic is one of these words that. Is very very loaded. It's very loaded and has a lot of connotations with new age or homeopathy or therapies that aren't fucking evidence based or whatever the fuck, okay? When I say holistic, what I mean is like uh, the German word gestalt, like gestalt psychology. Holistic to me means whole. So if, if to have happiness and peace, you have to look after you have to have a good um, handle on all aspects of self. So, your physical health, you have to keep an eye on your physical health, you have to keep an eye on your mental health, you have to keep an eye on your dietary health, you have to keep an eye on your social health. So, physical health means that You, you. It's important, I think, to try and keep relatively fit. It's important to exercise when you can, so that your body is has access to endorphins and chemicals, and that you have a sense of flexibility and mobility. I think that's important. That's that's one facet. That, like, when I say holistic, you can't just take one out and expect to be. A fully functioning happy person. You have to keep an eye on all aspects. So physical health. That's for me would be exercise flexibility. It doesn't necessarily mean being fit as a fucking fiddle or full of muscles. It just means that you're active we'll say. Because being very sedentary for a long period of time. I know myself. That can it brings a hum a very negative hum about it. Not only from a physical point of view where you're not getting access to these lovely... Like, I go for fucking runs. Like, I'll go for a 10-kilometer run. I'm sorted for the rest of the day with all those, you know, all that oxygen in my blood and all the lovely endorphins. And then on top of it, on an emotional level, I feel good for having gone out and done a run. If If I don't, if I spend three or four days... Like... 
it's a mistake I made when I was recording the Rubber Bandits album back in 2011. I 100% gave myself to that album. I did not leave the fucking studio. Okay, I didn't leave the studio. I concentrated only on making that album. To the detriment of my physical health, my social health and my dietary health. And I was left, even though I'd created a piece of work that I was happy with and I was doing something that gave me a sense of meaning and my actual work and the thing that I love doing are one, all these things that I thought would make me happy, it, it left me feeling quite fucking miserable because I had neglected other aspects of self. So, I wasn't leaving the gaff, wasn't exercising, uh, I wasn't even taking time out to cook, so I was ordering in takeaways, and I wasn't making time to speak or socialise with other people. And, I, look, you know, fuck it, I was young. I had to learn from that to truly realise where I needed to, to be. So, physical health. Gotta look after physical health. Then, dietary health. It's important, I believe, to have a good balanced diet where possible of making your own meals from fresh ingredients and making sure you're, you've proper nutrition across the board. I do think that matters in terms of feeling good about yourself. Again, for two reasons. Very blatant physical reasons. If you have proper nutrition, your body is physically getting what it needs to operate. And emotional reasons. It feels good. It, 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 it emotionally feels good when you know you're eating the right food. If you have McDonald's three days in a row, it can be yummy, but then that can come with it, a sense of shame that you've been like, oh, for fuck's sake, I've had McDonald's three days in a row. So there's an emotional element to that too. So looking after dietary health is important. Mental health, quite obviously. You have to keep an eye on the fucking mental health. Um... What gives peace with mental health? Alright, that, that that has subcategories. The one that I speak about a lot, an internal locus of evaluation. We have to strive for an internal locus of evaluation. Which essentially means that don't be comparing yourself to other people, either negatively or positively, okay? That means... If you see someone who has, I don't know, a fucking nice car or a nice haircut or who's doing something that you'd like to do, don't say to yourself, what a fucking prick. You have to challenge that and go, what they're doing does not affect me. Fair play to them. Their haircut doesn't affect me. Their pants don't affect me. Their job doesn't affect me. So don't, don't look down on someone. Right, and and I mean that internally. You can be the most polite person in the world and never speak ill of someone, but inside your own head, quite a lot of it is feeling that superior sense of contempt when someone is worse off than you. If they, if you feel that your job is better than theirs, or you feel that your haircut is better than theirs, or whatever the fuck. Similarly, don't do it when looking up to people. Don't feel a sense of jealousy. I'm not as good as them. They have a better job than me. I feel like shit. 
their trousers look better than my trousers do. Their haircut is amazing. If I had the same haircut as them, I couldn't pull it off. Again, this type of self-talk. All of this stuff. That What I've described there is what, what you'd call an external locus of evaluation. You are evaluating your own self-worth on purely external means. Okay? How good you feel about yourself is... If you're relating that too much to how you compare to other people. If you do that a lot, you are not going to have peace and happiness. It's as simple as that. Instead, you move towards the internal locus of evaluation. I am better than nobody else. Nobody else is better than me. Because I'm a human being. And human beings are really, really complex. And you simply cannot compare the complexity of one human being against the complexity of another. It's that simple. And, quite importantly too, no aspect of your behaviour, whether it be positive or negative, defines your value as a human being. You have intrinsic value as a human. And your intrinsic value is no greater or lesser than anyone else. We all have the same intrinsic value. So if you try real hard to focus on that intrinsic value, don't compare yourself to other people. That's one good mental health way of having a sense of peace and happiness Um, secondly a huge finding in the study of happiness and what brings happiness to human beings is do you have a sense of meaning in your life now I'm very 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 lucky and fortunate in that my job which is writing books, making podcasts, making music, whatever. I'm very fortunate that... Well, no, I've worked for it as well now, in fairness. I've fucking, you know, many, many years with no pay. But I'm lucky that the where I are, the thing that earns me a living is also the thing that gives me meaning and joy. But not everyone can say that. Some people, you're in a job. And this job that you do is how you earn money in order to live... But the job does not bring you a sense of meaning. Okay? And I would say most people are in that situation. But still, outside of that, don't let that defeat you. You can, A, set up a long-term plan so that you can future-wise future, future wise go, you know, what gives me a sense of meaning and can I make this my, my job? But you can have that as a long-term thing. Is what, is, that's what I did, to be honest. Because I'm doing this a long time. But for the years that this wasn't making me money, you know, I was making my money in other places, in jobs that weren't giving me meaning. But I had this as a hobby. And I was like, I can do this thing. And maybe someday I might be able to make my living out of this, out of being an artist, out of being creative. But meaning is very individual to the person. I get meaning from creativity because that's me. I know people who get meaning from doing Sudoku or I know people who get great meaning from volunteering and looking after animals. Do you know? Search and find your sense of meaning. And the other thing too is what I just mentioned there about having an intrinsic valuing, having an intrinsic understanding of your own uh, sense of self. If, If you go there if day to day you're waking up and going to bed and reminding yourself 
I'm better than nobody else. Nobody else is better than me because I have intrinsic value. If you're living your life that way, you will soon discover what it is that actually gives you a sense of meaning and purpose. Because think of it this way. If you're... Let's just say you're not creative and your friend is and at night times they like to do sketches and drawings, right? And you... You look, you silently to yourself look at your friend who likes to draw and you feel a little bit jealous or envious and you go, fuck it, I can't draw. Look at them at home drawing. They're so talented. That must be so nice for them. If you're living externally like that and you're jealous of someone else's meaning, how the fuck are you supposed to have the emotional intelligence to understand where you get your meaning from? Because not everybody knows where they get that sense of meaning from. When you're a child, you know, because children are good at, at that. A child just does what they want. A child will play with Lego. Do you know? Or a child will create a fantasy in their head and walk around thinking they're a superhero or d- doing whatever. Child, children are great at finding meaning. And I guarantee you, when you were a child, you were doing stuff that gave you that lovely sense of meaning. And it probably happened in the way that you played Meaning happens when we play. So, how did you play when you were a child? Were you a child who liked to play with Lego on, on their own? You know, I was a child who liked to be on my own because I'm an introvert. I like to draw, I like to paint, I like to make music. And lo and behold, that's, as an adult, what gives me meaning now. But maybe you were the type of child who... You loved playing TIG with people. Or tag or whatever the fuck you call it. Or you liked playing soccer with someone. Or you simply liked calling around to your friend's house and listening to them. Or talking to them or being listened to. Do you know? Think back to what you used to do as a child at play that used to really make you happy. And then figure out what is the adult equivalent now that you can do and how can you make that your hobby. And ultimately having discovered that as a hobby, if you're in a job right now that doesn't give you meaning, what career paths or changes can you make in your life whereby in five years' time, maybe that's how you make a living? And I believe ev- everyone everyone can have that. I truly believe that, you know? Um, so, yes, under the banner of mental health, having a sense of personal meaning is very important to happiness and peace. Then the other thing that I fucking said. Social health. Right. Social health is. Your relationships with other people. I'm an introvert. Okay. I spend 90% of my time on my own. I am very very happy to do that. I'm not really that social a person. But however. I still. Need to have. Relationships with people. I need to have friendships. I need to communicate with people. I need to contact people. I need to just simply listen to another person tell me what's going on in their lives. And if I try and shut that off, that's, again, it's not holistic. It's going to affect uh, meaning and happiness. Also, a huge facet of happiness is empathy. Your capacity to empathise. You can't really do empathy on your own. 
You can do a lot of self-compassion. You can do a lot of understanding your own emotions, listening to your own emotions, having a, a good vocabulary of your internal world. That's very important for meaning. But what, what good is understanding how you feel and having a good knowledge of it if then you can't do that with another person? Like, when I used to have, when I had bad mental health issues, a huge issue of it was is I, I didn't have a good internal language for how I was feeling. I would think I'm angry, but really I'm, I'm afraid. Or I'd think I'm sad, but really I'm angry. And I didn't understand my own emotions. I didn't have emotional intelligence, which is something you can learn, and it's something I did learn. But when you don't have that... When you confuse your own fear for anger or your own anger for sadness, you then can't appropriately identify emotions in other people. And then when you try and communicate or try and have meaningful relationships with another person, that can't occur because there's no empathy. So internal dialogue of your own emotions, but crucially, some degree of a social life where you're simply having and that doesn't mean you know going out on the fucking piss it just means staying in contact with a person you care about and not for them to listen to you but so that you can be present for them to hear what they're saying to, to live in their world if you're an extroverted person this isn't an issue if you're an extroverted person maybe what you need is because some some people who people who can be very extroverted being on their own is is not pleasant for them it's not they don't experience that as being pleasant so quite a lot of extroverted people can find themselves spending a huge amount of their free time in other people's company just because because being at home on by themselves is unpleasant so they have to leave their kitchen where it's just them and knock on their neighbour's door just to be around another person or just to be in a living room where people are watching TV. Some people are like that. And for those people, maybe what you need to do is spend a little bit more time by yourself to mindfully explore your own emotions, uh, what you're feeling, and to have a good language and dialogue for your own uh, internal world. Do you know what I mean? So that, that again would be one good thing if you want to be a peaceful, happy person. Was there a last one? Physical health, dietary health, mental health, and social health. I think that's, there's probably fucking way more, but like, look, just off the top of the head, being asked the question, what gives you a peaceful existence? That's those are things that I try and do in my life, and I, I like I said, it, it it's I I have to work on them all the time. I don't have these things. I, it's just like an exercise regime, or a, or a diet that I stick to. I get up every day and I work on these things all the time because I like being happy. I like being peaceful. I know what it's like. To not want to exist. Because my mental health was so bad. I know what that's like. And I never want to go back there. And I won't. Because I'm going to work 
every single day on these things that will give me a sense of meaning and purpose and happiness. So I hope that answers your question. Okay, Hoxton asks, Blind boy, as an Irish nationalist, how do you square your position of consistently berating English nationalists, i.e. Brexit? I will wager, with a name like Hoxton, that you are British or English. Um, do you know what? That question by itself, Hoxton, beautifully fucking... You, you've... And I mean this in the most... I mean this in a nice way, in a respectful way, not in a way that's that's shitting on you. But your your question is kind of ignorant. It's there's a lot of flaws in it, and the ignorance and flaw of your question has actually answered itself. And I don't mean that in a shitty way, I mean that in a a compassionate way. Um because the fallibility your question of your question is simply it's a blind spot. So, I don't know what I call myself an Irish nationalist, first of all. I'm not, I'm not mad about fucking labels. But to separate myself from it, you know, how do I square Irish nationalism against the fact that I will berate English nationalism? Quite simple, Hoxton. Irish nationalism is not based on... Like, okay, English nationalism. You, you, English nationalism, French nationalism, Spanish nationalism, American nationalism, all very toxic things. Why? Because they are based upon the notion of empire. English nationalism, at its core, is basically, we used to rule the world and look at us now. We used to be great and look at us now. People all over the world speak our language and look at us now. English nationalism is about taking what isn't yours and it's at its core it essentially is about feeling better and entitled to feeling better than other people. The At the root of the fucking British Empire is... We're English. We're incredible. We're really advanced. We're so advanced, we have set up a pseudoscientific system of, of racism that says that why we are better. And because of this, and also because God has chosen us, we are entitled to all of the world. Because we're the best. And we're going to take Africa. And we're going to take Ireland. And we're going to take India. And we're going to... Bring these people civilization, and we're going to civilize these savages. That's English nationalism. It's about conquering, believing you are better. It's about ignoring the pain of the people that are being conquered. It's about lessening their humanity and culture to the point that you believe that your humanity and culture is better than and more than. And it's the same for French nationalism, Spanish nationalism and American nationalism. It is colonial nationalism that essentially positions your nation as being better than others. Irish nationalism is not that. Irish nationalism is simply about 
getting rid of colonialism. Irish nationalism, at, at no point in Irish nationalism or any figures of Irish nationalism is anyone saying, we the Irish are fucking amazing and we're so brilliant and better than everyone else that we deserve to conquer them. That's not present at all in Irish nationalism. Possibly in, I don't even know if you'd, like, there was the blue shirts in the 30s who were a small group of Irish fascists. But other than that, you know, the, the, the figures of Irish nationalism that we, that are kind of held in, that are valorised as such, someone like Roger Casement. Roger Casement is, is, is considered to be the father of human rights. This is someone who exposed massive human rights abuses in the Congo. Um, James Connolly, someone who wanted to unite workers all around the world, who wanted to unite the poorer classes against brutality by the richer classes. Irish nationalism is very much about solidarity with oppressed peoples around the world, listening to the voices of people of colour, finding solidarity with African nationalism, with African Americans, with the people of India. So uh, Irish nationalism isn't, isn't about conquering anybody or feeling better. It's simply about saying we, we don't deserve to be brutalised, murdered, eradicated and colonised. We don't deserve that. Uh, Irish nationalism is, is a response to English nationalism. English nationalism says um, you're an animal, you deserve to die. And Irish nationalism says no, I'm a human. And I, des- I deserve to exist. And I just want to exist here. Leave me alone. So, like, only an English person could have asked that question. And I, I don't mean that in, in a shitty way. What I mean is, even if you consider yourself to be liberal or leftist, you've approached that question with the entitlement of English nationalism. Even if you think yourself that you're against it, you've failed to see one is about conquering and the other is about stop conquering me. Do you know? And look, that's what the fucking British education system does. That's what it does. You know, I ask my British pals, what, what did you actually learn in secondary school when it came to colonialism? Did you touch on it? And a lot of them say, we kind of did, but mostly it, it's, it talks about how the Spanish were awful colonizers, how the French were terrible, and how the English were brilliant, and, and the English were the ones who freed the slaves. And it doesn't address the, the, the crimes of the British Empire are not far off the crimes of, of Hitler and the Holocaust. They're really not. And that's that's not a hot take. You, you ask most historians. And the same can be said for what the French did. And for what the Belgians did. Colonialism is, is fucking disgusting. And it is... It's, it's, it has a lot of parallels with what Hitler was doing. It really does. It just... And, and, and I'm, I'm cautious. I don't want to be minimalizing the Holocaust or anything like that. But it's it's just mass murder and genocide under a different name. It's it's less explicit. 
the Nazis were very explicit. The Nazis didn't try and fool anyone. They were just going, no, no, we're class and, and these people deserve to die. The Spanish and British and French did the same thing, but through bureaucracy and, and uh, language such as, no, 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 we're, we're not murdering you, we're civilising you. You know? So, you know, on a long enough lens in the eyes of history, there's not a huge amount of difference. And I don't mean to minimalise the Holocaust by saying that. So I hope that answers your question. And yeah, I'm not having I'm not having a go at you. I'm having a go at colonialism there. I I, can, I understand why you have some blind spots there because of the culture you're from and the education you got where you would you would uh, miss the point in that question. And that's grand. I miss the point every day of the fucking week with shit. It's grand. And I know there's going to be some people listening some some devil's advocate people going well, you know, the the, the quote-unquote great nations of Europe were technologically advanced and they did bring their technology all around the world and, you know, what did the Romans ever do when he built roads type of thing. So, it, like, if you take that argument of the French, Spanish and British, you know, they, they went to South America and gave them modern cities or India or whatever, isn't that brilliant? Like, like says fucking who? Like, look look at the planet right now. Look at what colonialism has done to the planet. Look at what the the massive industrial expansion of the past three, four hundred years is doing to the planet. So, like, s- says who? Who says that? Like, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. Because, you know, with this mass industrialization, you know, what it does is it allows a very privileged few myself included and you included to have very safe relatively disease free long lives okay the 1% of the world will say you and me we've got that but on the larger scale of things the indigenous way of life is the one that doesn't harm the fucking planet that isn't going to possibly cause the complete extinction of humanity so it's a tough one I don't know even though you know the, the less technologically advanced way of life you had you know child mortality and all these things I did a podcast on this before but it's like it's like who says who says this this huge industrial civilization thing is, is the best way even though it's the most convenient for the very small few and I say a very small few because the earth contains billions and only a small percent of that get to avail of the benefits of modern medicine, modern technology, modern food. Only a small percent, but the vast majority of humanity suffers and the planet sure as fuck does and every other species that has to live on this planet with us is suffering because of a, a small 1%. So who says that's the best way? It's not as objective as it looks. Excuse that noise. That's a, that's a dodgy cable that I have. Hold on, I'll do it again. Yeah, I have a dodgy cable. So when I'm making... Uh, when I'm, when I'm finalising my argument, I tend to wave my hands out and then they come down on the table and touch the the thing should have done the fucking ocarina pause with that 
not bad. Okay, last question from Eric. How did you go about getting your book published and your creative... What is your creative process of writing and over, overcoming writer's block? Um, well... What I would say to anyone who is an artist, right? Like, if... If you're good enough, if, if you... If you have an innate ability... Um, the work ethic to continually try and make that as good as it can be and to always trying to be better and then also the work ethic to actually just put stuff out there the, when you have the internet like anyone can upload their art to the internet fucking anyone Okay, all it, it, the only barrier there is is ourselves, really. So, if you put your shit out there and you're working at it and you keep at it and it's good, then it it will eventually get seen. Do you know? And I've been doing this a long time. I've been putting work online since since fucking Bebo. Do you know? One of the first in the, in the country doing it. Um, before Bebo, it was putting stuff out on CDs and they were being passed around in schools and it took many 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 years before that was recognised by anybody many years but I knew that it was good I knew every time I worked it was getting better and then eventually you're getting you're getting phone calls from TV stations record labels and book companies so I had loads and loads of book offers over the years I didn't like any of them a lot of them were trying to make a quick buck do you know or, or trying to make quick money we'll get someone else to write the book and you just put your name to it or whatever I'm not interested in that I was, and I, I found those offers kind of I wouldn't want to work with someone who comes to me with an offer like that because they're not about the product but eventually my book publisher is Gil who are a very big publisher in Ireland they came to me and said do you want to write a book and I said, what What do you want? And they said, anything you want. What do you want to write about? And I said, I'd like to write fiction. I'd like to write short stories. And they said, of course, you do that. We'll give you full support. And they did. So I, that's how I got my book published. I made myself so visible online through creativity that you can't really be ignored and they end up coming for you. And that's not going to work for everyone. But if you feel you have talent, I don't see why you can't. If, if you can... If you have talent, you have the desire to create, and you have the work ethic to do it, um, I think that can happen. Um, and as well, if if you got to fucking learn to handle criticism online, if if, if you publish, if, if you put your creativity online, you are going to receive a lot of negativity, and a lot of hatred, and a lot of bitterness, and a lot of viciousness. You'll putting work out of any description that's creative will draw um, I don't know what it is but people a lot of people will come to really try and hurt you with words and you kind of what I do is I just go like you know like in a video game if, I, if, if I'm playing a video game what do I expect no one to shoot at me it's like it's a video game put your work online and 
people are going to come up and take shots at you and that's grand it's okay just keep your head down focus on the fucking work and don't be worrying about what other people think it's grand um creative process and overcoming writer's block how do you overcome writer's block i had a bit of it there as soon as my book came out i got writer's i won't say writer's block but i had difficulty writing for about six months this happens because of ego i suppose it's here's the thing right again taking it back to internal and external locus of evaluation you have to you you can only create for you that's what you have to do you can't create for an audience you have to write for you and if the work is good then other people will enjoy it but you have to write for you and like i said there with not, not i wasn't speaking about negative criticism there i was speaking about genuine nasty trolls if if you put things online you're going to meet nasty nasty trolls who are actually trying to hurt you and actually trying to really put you down and it's not criticism or constructive it's it's full on meanness there's a lot of that but there's also legitimate negative criticism some of it's going to be constructive some of it's going to be helpful other stuff it's just like nah your your criticism you're looking for a different book and the book that I've written is not what you want um, there's nothing I can do there. Yeah, if you want to avoid writer's block, yeah, you have to. You can't put too much weight in anyone's opinion of your work, positive or negative. Taking, allowing positive praise for your piece of work, it, taking that on board and allowing yourself to feel very good about it, that's also harmful. In my experience, in my personal experience taking positive feedback from we'll say from members of the public not from like I have editors and a commissioner from my book so when they give me feedback positive and negative I take that on board because they're they're not coming at it from the point of view of a consumer they're coming at it from the point of view of being involved in the process so there I do listen to that criticism because that's 100% constructive from people who really know what they're doing and it's their job but like how was my book received it was received in a lukewarm fashion from critics okay the like i'm i'm just not going to be accepted by the irish literary crowd that's not happening i've got a fucking plastic bag on my head and as far as they're concerned i haven't really earned my position as a writer i they would see me as I know he's he's a musician and now he thinks he can write books so and to be honest I don't really I can't be thinking about wanting respect from the Irish literary scene I, I just want to write what I like and what people find enjoying so I got would have gotten a lukewarm reception from critics but the reception I'd have gotten from we'll say people who read the book would be very very positive so in the early days of the book coming out, I used to go onto Amazon and read reviews, and most of the reviews are like five-star reviews, and they're really positive. But I found this was actually quite harmful, because when I wrote the book, I'm writing it for me, 
And one of the things that used to freak me out is when people like things about the piece of work that aren't my favourite things. Or when, when a story in the book that I consider to be kind of throwaway, not throwaway, but when, when a story in the book that I wouldn't have that I wouldn't be mad about turns out to be incredibly popular that freaks me out that throws me off kilter because then I start to think how come this story that I think is amazing isn't as popular as I thought it would be but this other one that I don't care that much about is actually really popular so that's freaky and that's real external locus of evaluation thinking around creativity and that created a sense of writer's block for me so Writer's block essentially is, it's the fear of failing. And you can only fear failure when you have a kind of egotistical notion of what your work is supposed to be based on external things. So how am I supposed to sit down and write if in my head is a positive review about a story I wasn't even mad about? Sure I can't. So the only way to get out of the writer's block was... I had to literally sit down and go, I am not trying to write a good story and I'm not trying to write a bad story. I am trying to simply sit down and write. And the key is, and I always take it back to this, playing with Lego when you're a child, the purest and finest artistic process that exists is a child sitting down with Lego. That is that is that right there. That's perfection in terms of a creative process, because the child with Lego, they're not trying to make anything. They're literally just playing with Lego and allowing the process to turn into something that could either be good or bad, and they don't know what it is. It's one hundred percent enjoying the process and allowing that to happen. So that's what I do with my writing. I might bring up a Google image. Like, if I'm trying to get myself out of writer's block, what I'll do is I'll bring up images, I'll bring up words. You know, uh, if the word fox comes up, I'll just start writing about a fox and get involved in the process of writing about this fox. And, I don't know, before you know it, the fox finds a hat and becomes the mayor of a town. I don't know. But I'll just let it process-based, take it to where it needs to go. But I won't think of a fox and then say to myself this story about a fox has to be amazing I just go I'm going to write and I'm going to see where it goes and it might be good and it might be bad I don't know but when I can get to that place where it's like a daydream flow then I, it usually ends up being quite good and I'm happy with it so that's all I can say there on that have I gone over time right 70 minutes uh, I'll talk to you next week. Having a clue what I'm going to be talking about next week. Hopefully a hot take. Best of luck. I hope you enjoyed this week. I fucking really enjoyed that. I loved answering your questions. And... That was fun for me. I, I love... I, I liked... Having a wide range of topics and... Exploring my own thoughts around it. Yurt.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.